I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Fiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. We're thrilled to be taping at this special live episode in uh, Columbia, Missouri, a couple hours east of where I live, um, as part of the 2019 Unbound Book Festival. It says here, pause for applause. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be able to find this and other episodes later at lithub.com under the news tab or type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app to subscribe to our show. Last night, Monica Farrell did a terrific interview with George Saunders as part of the festival's opening. Tonight, we're so glad to be in conversation with him and Paula Saunders about politics, specifically the 2020 Democratic field and, of course, writing. Democrats in the Bardo, if you want. Oh. Um, I know, it's so bad. Um, so Paula Saunders is the author of the 2018 novel, The Distance Home, which the New York Times calls, quote, a meditation on the violence of American ambition. The novel was named one of the best books of the year by Real Simple and was longlisted for the Center for Fiction's 2018 First Novel Prize. She's a graduate of the Syracuse University Creative Writing Program and the winner of a postgraduate Albert Schweitzer Fellowship at SUNY Albany. The Distance Home is her debut novel, which she worked on for 30 years. Welcome to the show, Paula. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> is that accurate? Um, not exactly Yeah, accurate. but you, you, yeah. you started writing. I started writing it when I was a graduate student, so that was 30 years ago. There I were started some spaces in between. Yes, I started writing it again about five years ago. Um, and we're going to be also speaking to her husband, George Saunders. George is the author of nine books, including 10th of December, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and the best-selling novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the Man Booker Prize. He has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Malamud Prize for Excellence in the Short Story. George, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks. 
So we've asked you both here to talk about politics and writing. George, last night you said that you did think of yourself as a political writer, though you had some interesting caveats, which hopefully we'll get to. And Paula, the distance home is largely set in Rapid City, South Dakota, where you grew up amid a family whose parents have very different views of the world. So I want to start off by asking how the two of you talk politics to each other. Do you talk about it? How? Are you always on the same page? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk about politics a lot, actually, and we are always on the same page because we're very left. We're very, very left-leaning, and yeah. we see what's going on today in the world, and we're very upset about it on a human level. And so we talk about it all the time, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that parts of my novel kind of resonate with a, with a larger political life, um, just because my whole idea about in this novel is that you know these these violent actions that we see playing out on the larger stage in our politics are really carried through our families and we learn to we learn to enact them and we learn to endure them to to endure seeing them in our public discourse in our families that's what i i think and so i think uh, yeah we talk about it constantly yeah. one of the things in the in the book was that i was thinking about is that you know al and 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 Eve are different politically. I would say that Eve was like a, is a Democrat in a way, and Al seems much more Trumpy to me mm -hmm. as a character. But there are fewer. I wonder if there, if you think there are fewer and fewer families like that now that, that the political parties self sort more, so that there aren't mixed political families in the same way. I'm not sure because I think my sister's in one. Oh, really? <laughs> in one of those mixed political okay. families. Yeah, her husband's very Republican. She's more. Um, you know, open-minded, left-leaning. And I think, too, with, my, with Eve in this book, with my mother in this book, one of the things that was going on was she was living through her cultural moment, which was kind of the beginning of the women's liberation and those ideas. So she was one of those women who, even on the prairie, um, wanted to kind of stand up for herself and stand up to her husband. That, that's what that meant for her. So that caused a lot of friction. And, and he, too, was also caught in his own in that political time, in that kind of cultural time, where he was feeling that he needed to carry on this tradition of manliness or machismo or whatever you would call it, that prairie gendered gender role thing. No, that's a real thing. Yeah, it really is. And so, so they were at odds over that for sure. So in talking about this, I was thinking about the ways in which my modes of reading have changed since Trump's election. And I was wondering what you think about that. You said that um, the ways that we learn to think about acts of violence, those things play out with a relationship um, between our families and, and the larger political stage. And I wonder if maybe the opposite isn't also true. You know, how is what we see on the larger political cha stage changing how we interact with each other on a daily basis, changing the ways that we read and write text? You use the word endurance, and I'm just, I think that my relationship to time has been altered. Um, and that's why I'm interested in this question. And, and when political candidates are talking to voters, right, they're, they're sort of authorish, and voters are reading them. And I wonder what you think about that, how people are reading differently since 2016. Can I go ahead with this yeah. one? Sorry. <laughs> I, I kind of think that I'm not sure that they're readers. I'm not sure voters are readers. I have a feeling that voters are, um, because what the candidates say is so condensed and skewed through the media that they're kind of almost absorbing taglines. So they're almost, uh, voters are almost more consumers, to, to me it seems like, than readers. 
I'm not sure that they're reading. I think they're consuming. And they find kind of what they have an affinity with and what they like, and they consume it and then spit it out in terms of a vote. Um, that would be how I would read this, this particular moment. If we had readers as voters, even if they're reading what the, politi what the politicians are saying to them, I think we'd have a, a better outcome with our elections. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about just the, uh, I, have, I have a sense that if we, in 20 years from now, if we look back at today, we're gonna say, man, we were eating a lot of toxicity through social media, basically, just our, just our quick mm -hmm. acceptance of it. It definitely alters your reading style. It, it, um, That's the kind of reading that didn't exist 10 years exactly ago. Exactly right. And, and so, you know, if you think, I was thinking this, if I say something offensive today, uh, and then one of you is offended, and we see each other on the sidewalk, then a human interaction happens, and it ins almost invariably will be softer. You know, you'll say, hey, I, you know, your talk is okay, but, and I say, oh, I'm sorry, and then we're in conversation, and it's, it becomes actually literary, because it's call and response. If you go home and, and get on Twitter, it's 140 characters of surficial, uh, usually snark, or the position is rigid and it's going out into the world in a rigid way. So then you multiply that times the billions of interactions on Twitter and you get what Paul is saying, which is it's not really a truly literary reading. It's kind of more propagandistic in a way and it locks people into their mindsets. And so I think it's high risk to be as unliterary as we are now in our public discourse, if that makes sense. Also, the algorithms of those particular platforms, which we've talked about on this show, tend to push, like YouTube, if you watch a slightly right-wing video, it'll feed you a more right-wing video and then a more right-wing video right. until suddenly you're in Nazi territory, right. right? Or if you watch a cat video, suddenly you're seeing rabbit But I mean, it, it's interesting to me that, right, Polly, you use kind of the, I mean, the language of capitalism to criticize the way that people are mm -hmm. um, entrenching their positions, right? And when you talk about Twitter, it's also, right, that's a way that our interactions become quantified. People can see, you know, I tweeted at Whitney, which I did yesterday, and a certain number of people like it. Um, well, if, I say, if I say nice things, no one gives a damn. <laughs> it's true. We, we actually kind of have to snark at each I'm other. Like, yeah, I kind of like you. And then it's like, well, that is really boring. Boring, boring yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things that I love about uh, Lincoln and the Bardo is the way that it places press accounts and criticism of Lincoln, speaking of political writing, you know, directly and many of, in, in, into the text, and many of those criticisms or compliments are directly contradictory of one another, and you put them right together in a, in a row. Um, and it reminded me, it made me think of a story by Donald Barthelme that I really love called Robert Kennedy Saved from Drowning, which is a story that critiques the political profile by giving contradictory stories about Kennedy over and over again so that you can't really get a picture of him. They're, but they're given with such authority that you think you're getting a profile of Kennedy, right? And um, sort of deconstructs that idea and it feels like you're doing some of the same thing. Um, you were talking last night about how no single point of view is complete and you seem skip skeptical of the political press, you know, by the way that those, that happens in the book. But so in this election, where do you go to read political coverage that you trust? Uh, well, I go to the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker. But, right. but, but I think here's what I, I mean. I don't know if this is true in a political sense, but in any sense, the, the truth, a, a good gateway to the truth is to just read all the accounts and let them settle in a little bit. Uh, I think the scary thing that's happened in the last, well, since the rise of Fox, basically, is that you've got one presence who is uh, purposely manipulating the truth. So I don't think that, from my point of view, that doesn't really help us to accept every so often I watch it just to see what's going on. But I, I think in general, in a literary sense, the, the truth is, is the, the, the accumulation of all different points of view. 
and if you could absorb all of those, then you would be in a better position to act after, after that, I think. And with Lincoln, uh, there's a great book called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln, which is just a collection of every snarky thing anyone <laughs> ever said about him. And they set it up until the day of his death and then after. Uh, and then he was kind of sanctified after his death. But it's interesting to, he was not loved in his time at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hated for a lot of different reasons from profound to trivial. Uh, and my admiration for him increased so much because he was hearing and reading all this stuff. And yet he still, you know, kept on trying to do the right thing. I mean, the criticism that he gets for having the party the night of Willie's death, all that stuff, that was so cruel. I mean, that stuff that you yeah. have in the book about that is painful. Yeah. There, was, there were a lot of talk about how he, they were partying the night their son got sick, which was not, not true, mm -hmm. and it's uh, designed to be hurtful. So, yeah, some things never change, I guess. But. When I was reading that bit, I think I was also thinking about how, right, of course, he was a president so far before television, and now, I mean, when we asked you where you got your news, you, you said all print sources, and, and I never watch TV news, like, I never watch it. TV news, and I basically have to be forced and will complain about it. Do you watch TV news? We, oh, we yeah. do, we do. We, we watch, <laughs> we do. I was so frightened when they said that. No, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, we watch MSNBC, and you know, this is one of the things George was saying about Fox and kind of this, um, you know, I don't know, this misappropriation of news and the, the dissemination of false news. So you have that big weight on one side where really you're not getting even anyone's accurate point of view. You're getting yeah. something totally off the scale. And then somehow the middle section of news um, kind of caters to that a little bit. So they soften their blows. And so you'll hear something that you know is true that has happened, but you'll hear it very padded on the, on the middle kind of news. You go over to MSNBC and you'll kind of hear what happened. This is not an advertisement for MSNBC, but I just feel like that's a real disservice to the American public when you can't go to your middle lanes of news and actually find out some hard facts. I mean, when I was a kid, this is going to reveal my age, um, but we're doing well in, comp in competition for age, so I'll be fine as soon as the young <laughs> person here. Um, I, you know, we read Time Magazine. Yeah. And talk about a middle lane, you know, that was very sort of like, and it came out weekly and there was plenty of time to process it. And, it, you know, like that sort of, I'm, it sounds so dorky to say that Time Magazine was good, but it feels like there was something valuable in that. I don't know what you guys think of that. You know, I, one thing I've noticed is, I, and this is touchy and I'm not sure, I, but, but when I was a kid, you'll remember George Wallace, the yeah. racist governor of Alabama. And I remember as a kid watching Cronkite and his company keep him off in the margins. Hmm. He, they would never give him time. Or if they did, they, there was something tonally where they were saying to you, this guy's a kook. Yeah. So hmm. he never, he ran for president, but never got any serious attention. So a big question would be, what changed? Because hmm. when Trump, again, started running and he was saying racist things, it was like a circus. The rating went up and he was given 40 minutes live on CNN. So they're, they're, the gatekeepers, which are, you know, elitist, but I don't have a problem with elitists, you know, like when I have brain surgery, I'd like an elitist to do it. But they were, they were, they were essentially keeping uh, the nut jobs away from the microphone. Something switched, so maybe it's more democratic, but it's also uh, eroding democracy to say anybody who gets clicks, no matter how obnoxious or wrong-headed, come on up and take over. And I think, you see that happening, uh, I think, everywhere, you know. So, so it's, a, it's an elite gatekeeper that sort of stepped back and now, you know, that's true populism, which is so scary. Right. Yeah. Populism is not always a good thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Frequently not. Um, thinking about how different politicians are covered, I know a lot of 
my friends have been talking recently about the women candidates in the field and the kinds of attention they're getting, the ways in which they're talked about or not talked about. And it has more women, the 2020 Democratic field has more women candidates than ever before. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, um, and maybe even Stacey Abrams, I don't know. <laughs> and so I wanted to talk about how gender was playing out in the race and also just sort of in, poli in political conversation these days. Um, I feel like I see these strains of anti-intellectualism and I can't help but see how they run parallel to strains of misogyny. And I thought maybe, Paula, you could read us a passage from your book and talk to us about how it plays out with your characters. Sure, um, so this book, The Distance Home, is set in South Dakota. It's fairly autobiographical. Um, and in it, um, the father is a cattle dealer and the mother is a housewife. And the, there are three siblings, but the older son is a ballet dancer as is the middle daughter. And they're very serious about their ballet study. This does not go well with the father, who's very much against it, given his kind of plains machismo and feeling that boys should be not dancing ballet for some reason. Um, so, so this is, we start at a point where um, the boy has gone through a lot of uh, humiliation from his father and, and not necessarily um, humiliation that the father means to be uh, inflicting, but just humiliation that's kind of central to the father's worldview. And so it's come out and the boy has uh, been affected by it and started pulling out his hair. So he's pulled out all his eyebrows and eyelashes and hair on the top of his head. Um, and, and so here we are. And the chapter is titled Spring. Spring was coming. Crocuses were pushing up through the frozen ground. You'd look down to find one blooming impossibly in a mound of melting snow, a magical circle of green and pale purple or yellow or white. Leon was still pulling out his hair, and Eve was talking to him every day as if to a wounded animal. Don't pull at it, Leon, she'd say calmly, gently running her hand over the top of his head. Look, she'd say, it's growing back. Just keep your hands off it, and I'm sure it'll come back in no time but nothing was working. So after nights filled with argument, counter-argument, insistence and refusal, all of which would invariably escalate into name-calling and accusation, door slamming and tears, Al finally gave in and the three of them went to see a psychiatrist. Quack, quack, Al said in protest as they pulled up to Dr. Harris's office. He laughed, even though neither Eve nor Leon joined him. Anyone can hang a shingle, Eve, he pointed out. Be quiet, Al, Eve said, just shut your mouth. And she got out of the car, already thoroughly disgusted with him. Inside, the doctor asked them to sit. After they'd chatted a few minutes, the doctor said, and what is it you three would like to speak with me about today? Well, Al started, seeming to feel it was his duty as head of the household. We don't really have much to talk about. Eve here had some bridge buddies who thought you might be able to help Leon with the problem he's having. The doctor looked to Leon. Okay, he said, and what seems to be the trouble, Leon? Leon shrugged on the hot seat. He's pulling out all his eyelashes and eyebrows, Al continued, which you can plainly see. And now he's pulling out the hair on his head. That's the problem. I'm sure, Eve immediately countered, that's not the problem. That's not the only problem, Dr. Harris. There are a lot of problems. She looked at Al and left it at that. Al shifted uncomfortably and glared back at her. He knew better than to add their dirty laundry into the mix. And the one thing he had not expected when he'd agreed to all this nonsense was an ambush. Would you like to go on with that? Dr. Harris asked. Well, of course we're seeking help for our son, Eve said. 
But I'm not convinced that's the main point because, well, there can be a lot of friction at home. His father and I don't get along all that well, and to tell the truth, there can be a lot of uncalled for derogatory remarks and put-downs. It could be that Leon's problem is just a part of all that. Plus, his father's gone all the time. I don't know. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Eve, a man's got to make a living, Al said, grinning at the doctor, intending to gain a foothold by cementing their agreement on this. And Leon, the doctor said, what's your idea about why you're here? I don't know, Leon said, sitting on his hands, because of my ha hair. But things may not always be as straightforward as they seem on the surface. Is that right, the doctor said? Nice. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for reading that. It's, I mean, it's such a, it's such a very painful scene, and then the scene after that is really difficult, also. Um, but you know, the the way that Al starts to, I particularly like that line when he looks at the doctor and says, "We got to make a living," right? He's trying to undermine Eve as much as possible by using his role as the male in that sort of situation. Um, did you think about these characters? politically when you were writing them? Did, and did you guys talk about this book when she was working on it? Um, well, we talked about it, but not in that kind of detail. I think we would talk mostly about sentences at our house. Uh, <laughs> that's all we ever talk about. <laughs> we really do. Yeah, we talk about sentences. But um, in this, I mean, it was very clear to me that we were in a struggle, that they were in a struggle over the fate of their son, yeah. and that they were playing out their gender roles. And you know, that to me is implicitly political. My son is a gymnast. Which oh, is not a, not a, yeah. supposedly not a gender, gender appropriate thing, which I think is completely nonsense. And gym, gym, gymnastics is extremely cool, and he's way in better shape than I was. When I, you know. <laughs> um, but I know how that it's that those roles still exist. You know, it's still a thing. He doesn't talk about it a lot with his fellow students. He doesn't want people to know that he does gymnastics right. for those same That's reasons. So I found that portrayal of Leon to be extremely compelling. I think one of the things that's so touching about it is the ways that people are attentive and inattentive to pain and write the word disgust in, in there. And also just, yeah, I mean, the way that you can see the characters kind of sliding by each other's pain. Um, and we've talked, a, I, I think, when I think about politics these days, it's inescapable for me to think about um, men in pain because it seems like a thing that a lot of people are worried that we're sliding by, we're not paying enough attention to it, and especially in relation to Me Too. And you know, kind of where does everyone belong? Um, and everyone's discomfort with people exceeding those roles or not sticking where they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also the duration of time that you cover in the book really makes that vision, the way that the cost of that, um, the cost of those those perceived gender limits um, really. I mean, apparent. this is the uh, this is the make America great again time, right? Yeah. Right. And when I was reading the book, I kept thinking like, this doesn't isn't so great, is it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly right. You know, and I I feel like when I think of this book, I think of like the heart of this family and how much they really do love each other and how much they are absolutely um, in sh in shackles by their um, by their adherence to the cultural norms. Yeah. You know, they just can't get beyond this blanket, this heavy blanket of cultural expectation to move to their own freedom and see each other as human beings, which is what they always want to do. You can see that, I f I'm hoping you can see that underneath, in yeah. the underpinning of it, that they want to make that human connection, but they're totally um, 
pinned down by their cultural expectations. And, you know, this, this is how we learn. We learn in our families, you know. We learn about success and failure in our families. And that gets carried out into the larger culture. So it's a lot of undoing, but it's a, it's a nice thing to start to be thinking about it. So speaking of men in pain and cultural expectations, George. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's all of a sudden. <laughs> this is the kind of segue that's just, you know, it's a hallmark of our show. <laughs> you talked last night about how the idea of work made its way into your fiction, um, you know, and, and that your characters in stories like Civil War Land and Bad Decline and Pastorelia have jobs, however absurd those jobs might be, uh, and are striving to move from being working class into middle class, as you did, you know. Uh, but today, is the ability to work one's way up from the working class to the middle class gone? And that's also something that's happening in your book, Paul, so maybe yeah. both of you could talk about this after George speaks. You know, how, and how should Democratic candidates speak to this? Yeah, I, I think the biggest, I mean, if you look at all the issues we could list as political issues, and this I think is true regardless if you're on the left or the right, I think it reduces down to uh, income inequity the radical changes in income distribution in the last 30 years. So the metaphor would be we're a country that lives on a mountainside. Uh, all the oxygen has gone up to the peak. Mm -hmm. So everybody in the middle and lower middle class is living in this vaguely anaerobic condition mm -hmm. that makes people, <laughs> makes people panicked. You know, of course, you're going to be on your worst behavior when you're short of breath. So I think that, and, and you know, in our, and it's not to be too nostalgic, but I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And when I was a little kid in the city, Everybody worked at, a, I think, American Can Company or Nabisco or those kind of jobs. And if you were just an average or even a less than average person who didn't go to college but had a generally good work ethic, you could work and you could own a house and you could have your dignity. You know. Yeah. Uh, now that was true of the white. I don't. It was different beyond that very narrow swath, and that's a different, another issue, important one. But even that, if you say, what if we took that world, broaden it to truly include everybody? life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that would be a country I could really get behind. Right. You know? But now I, I think people in the working class uh, are, are in that anaerobic condition. They look up at the top, they see a big party going on up there, and a little bit of arrogance going on, and, uh, and it's discouraging. And suddenly you don't love your country. You think your country's conning you a little bit, and actually it kind of is. So I would say if I was a Democratic candidate, I would, I would be looking mechanically, how can we get the money to come back down because it didn't go up there naturally you know <laughs> mm -hmm. it went up there by rules and regulations i, like, I and would tricks. like some money to come back down that mm -hmm. would be nice no, i mean it's essential it didn't order, work order for me on when i did my taxes this year they were higher than they were last year yeah. that didn't seem how that was because you're a writer exactly. but, but i think that's really it and then of course the other side will often say oh that's class warfare but class warfare has been going on a long time and we've been losing you know so i think that to do a little bit of forced you know, move down would make everybody happy, everybody healthier. You know? I want to add something to that too, because I, I have this idea about our, our country as a political body. You know, in your physical body, you understand that if you're right-handed, right, like you write all your checks with your right hand and you do all your work with your right hand, but that would never mean that you'd let your left hand wither because you understand the integrity of the physical body. But we don't understand the integrity of the societal body and the communal body, we don't seem to understand it. So what we've done basically is we've let this right hand that has all the function and the power um, become like balloon, you know, huge <laughs> helium balloon size. And we've let the left hand wither and almost die, and maybe die in some instances, you know, think of healthcare and things like that. So this is an understanding I think that's kind of fundamental that we need to reverse so that we understand we are a whole 
cultural body. We are a whole societal body, just like our body is a whole physical body. Um, if we can understand that, I think we can write, write it somehow over time. But if we can't understand that, I don't see how the, um, the personal greed goes out of it. Um, I'm hoping. I'm hoping for the Democrats. But I'm so interested in this as a problem of writing because it seems like so much of American politics is built on talking about individuals and that so many failures have come from not talking about collective responsibilities and um, notions of you know, collective goals. We have really a failure of language in how to articulate that, mm -hmm. and, um, which is deeply disappointing to me. And I see it in the literature of other countries. And I see American writers, I feel like, working to invent language for that. And I wonder if there are writers who you think are, are doing that or ways that you find yourself pushing to think about notions of the collective. Because like, it's, a, it's a left thing, right? Okay. And, well, I just fin finished reading Philip Roth's American Pastoral, which I thought was absolutely fascinating and fabulous because, you know, it just really talks about this whole idea of American progress, you know, and so you progress, progress, progress through the generations to this pinnacle of progress, and then there's this explosion because what enters the picture is compassion, and it explodes this idea of monetary progress and, and um, you know, and individual progress. So. Um, when I walked away from that, I really felt like I'd read a, a poem that had opened a window that I hadn't looked through before because I was like, wow, this idea of progress and compassion being at loggerheads isn't really a new idea, but it's something we need to be thinking about and talking about. Definitely. I, I like to, I'm a big fan of the Russians, and I, whenever I think about political story, I think of this one by Chekhov called, um, it's called Grief, and it's a real simple little thing, and it's just a guy whose son he, he's a, you know, a cab driver, or like a carriage driver, a really poor guy, and his son has died that morning, but he has to still work. So it's just, the story is him just trying to tell his passengers about this, and they don't, don't, he's not a human being to them, he's too poor. So one guy actually hits him in the back of the head, just drive, shut up and drive. So at the end of the story, where he's got no success in communicating this, he takes the horse back to the stable, and the last bit is he leans his head against the horse's muzzle and says, I had a son. You know, so that's now this now this is uh, 30, 40 years before the Russian Revolution. But if you want to read it politically, it's all right there. You know, what what does a whole generation of people who have to talk to their horses to get any sympathy? What, you know, what do they what <laughs> yeah. do? They do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think when I think I mean, I, I I'm also was a Tolstoy fan growing up. And, uh, you know, when you look at War and Peace, sorry to bring up a very long, big book, but, um, you know, that book is happening Right, leading right up into the revolution, the, the, the income disparity in Russia at that time feels similar to today. Yeah. It feels not that far off. And what you, when you talk about Chekhov, that feels like our society today yeah, in some yeah, ways. I think so. And you know, the weird thing about it is if you're a writer and you think, as I do, that writing has political efficacy, it's interesting to think that all those great writers in 19th century Russia, probably the pinnacle of certainly the short story, and then it all went to hell. So did fiction keep the revolution uh, sane? No, it didn't. <laughs> you could even argue that it, it hastened it, right. and then all the, all the sort of literary feeling went out of the culture and it became quite Bolshevik and savage. So if, you, if I ever find myself saying, fiction can save us, I'm like, well, maybe. You know, it, right. it, it, it may be a, a force that pushes back against evil, but in that case, it, you know, it, it, mm. it didn't. So we've talked a little bit about class, and I think you know so much of the political coverage that we read uses you know the working class as code for the white working class, and you've touched on that a little bit. Um, 
and I know Witt has a particular um, other way that he thinks that we should be talking about this. I think people should talk <laughs> about region. I'm, I, if I have a, a hobby horse that I'm riding about the Democratic candidates is that the last three presidents who were Democrats were all from the South or the Midwest. Um, it's where we're weak as a party in terms of votes, so it helps to have somebody from there. And I just think, you know, Carter, you know, Bill Clinton and Obama all had Midwest or Southern roots. And it worries me that there aren't very many candidates like that in the race today. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is the only one that I yeah. know of specifically. Yeah. You like him? <laughs> I do like him. I actually really love him because he's young and he's like a mayor and he's like got all these great ideas and he's like full of energy and positive and I really like him. Knock on wood. But, he, but he's young. Do you guys think region matters? Is that... Do you think about uh, it at all when you're voting? You know, I'm, I'd have to say I'm not a big political think as much to TV as I watch. I'm not a big political thinker. Uh, I think it does matter in terms, as you're describing, votes. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I heard this Lincoln guy is pretty good. I think he might be. <laughs> you know, but I, I don't Speaking know. of a Midwestern politician. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it also, you know, also probably I would imagine this this time around, you're going to need somebody on the left who can talk to the independent and the left somewhat more left-leaning Trump voters to, to, to have the courage and the heart to reach across the aisle and say, I'm not going to disqualify you because you voted for Trump. Let me talk to you for a minute about the things that really matter. Uh, so in a way, it's um, a way of saying, I'm looking at somebody and he's got the label Trump supporter. I'm going to take that label off for a minute and see what else are you. And then I'm going to try to talk to those other things and, and the other part of you and try to, try to bring you forward. That takes a lot of skill, I think, yeah. and a lot of heart, actually, to do that. I also just want to say, like, people often say when I when think that reading for, like, Midwestern politician means I want them to speak to white men in the Midwest. But actually, the Midwest, as Sugi and I talk about a lot, is a pretty diverse place, particularly in the cities. I live know? in the Midwest. Every time I see one of these things, I just read. This is my one, I think, defensible use of Twitter. I'm sort of like, still in the Midwest, still over here, <laughs> yeah. still existing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, so... Um, George, there are a lot of uh, hauntings in your work, you know, uh, not only in Lincoln in the, in the Bardo, but also in Civil War Land and Bad Decline and your other collections. Very often, they are warnings from the past or other, uh, or other places or parts of society, sort of terrible, frightening figures that appear. But the more optimistic and maybe most directly political part of Lincoln in the Bardo is the section where all the ghosts join together in Lincoln's body. I sort of read it like a literal e pluribus unum. Um, could you talk about that passage a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, in the book, one of the conventions is that if, you, uh, if a ghost enters a living person, they can basically ventriloquize the person and, and redo their thoughts. One of the things that's not sure, uh, determined is whether or not the living person notices. That's kind of the question of the book. Can a dead person, can a ghost uh, affect a living person? So here, um, Lincoln's about to leave, and all of these ghosts get together, and they're trying with all their might to pull him back so he can have one last uh, goodbye with his son. So in this part, I, I won't, I'll leave the identifiers off, but this is just a kind of rotating chorus of the three main ghosts describing what happens as these hundreds of ghosts of all kinds, uh, kind of, they, they actually kind of miniaturize and enter Lincoln's body as he's walking across the graveyard. So <clears throat> that's simple enough, I guess. <clears throat> and Man Manders is a night watchman. It occurred to us now, as Manders, lantern held high, preceded the president into a grove of trees, that we might harness that mass power to serve our purpose. What Mr. Volman had been unable to accomplish alone, 
perhaps all of us working as one might. And so as the lantern light fell out a slant before us, I requested that everyone therein all at once exhort Mr. Lincoln to stop. <laughs> we would stop him first and a successful endeavor to send him back. All willingly agreed, flattered to be asked to do anything at all or participate in the slightest thing. Stop, I thought, and that multitude joined me, each expressing that impulse in his or her own manner. Pause, cease, cease, self-interrupt, desist, halt, discontinue all forward motion, and so on. <laughs> what a pleasure. What a pleasure it was being in there together, united in common purpose, in there together, yet also within one another, thereby receiving glimpses of one another's minds and glimpses also of Mr. Lincoln's mind. How good it felt doing this together. We thought, we all thought, as one, simultaneously. One mass mind united in positive intention. All selfish concerns of staying, thriving, preserving one's strength momentarily set aside. What a refreshment to be free of all that. We were normally so alone, fighting to stay, afraid to err. We had not always been so solitary. Why, back in that previous place, we now recalled, all instantaneously recollected, suddenly I remembered the showing up at church, the sending of flowers, the baking of cakes to be brought over by Teddy, the arm around the shoulder, the donning of black, the waiting at the hospital for hours. Leverworth giving Burmeister a kind word at the lowest moment of the bank scandal. Furbach drawing out his purse to donate generously to Dr. Pearl, for there had been a fire in the West District. The hand-holding group of us wading into the surf to search for poor drowned Chauncey. The sound of coins falling into the canvas bag crudely labeled, Our Poor. A group of us on our knees, weeding the churchyard at dusk. The clanking of the huge green soup pot as my deacon and I lugged it out to those wretched women of the evening in the sheep's grove. The happy mob of us children gathered about a tremendous vat of boiling chocolate and dear Miss Bent stirring it, making fond noises at us as if we were kittens. My God, what a thing to find oneself thus expanded. How had we forgotten all of these happy occasions? To stay, one must deeply and continuously dwell upon one's primary reason for staying, even to the exclusion of all else. One must be constantly looking for opportunities to tell one's story. If not permitted to tell it, one must think it and think it. But this had cost us, we now saw. We had forgotten so much of all else we had been and known. Well, thank you very much. A laugh riot. <laughs> For me, that's such an incredibly hopeful and beautiful part of that yeah. book. I mean, it's what I hope will happen in the election that I fear will not happen. We can, yeah. If we could all just inhabit Lincoln's body and go to the polls and vote, it would be fine. Um, anyway, uh, that passage to me also is a critique of individualism to me and, and, and writing individualism in a way where, you know, like writers are the people who are constantly looking for opportunities to tell one story, you know, um, rather than tell the story of others. You know, I, this book, I, I'm only realizing recently, I, I did a story for GQ where I went and lived in a, a homeless camp in Fresno for uh, a week, incognito. 
And uh, that was something that I noticed there is all these people, many of whom had mental illness or addiction, uh, they would corner you and they would just tell you their story. And their story always had, of course, they were the hero. They were the only sane person in the place uh, and they'd been victimized. And then you'd see them a day later and they would grab you again and tell you the exact same story. Mm -hmm. So I think that's suffering, you know, to, to be, to have one's identity so-called into question that you have to just keep repeating it. And you sometimes see it in people with dementia, you know, they just, I'm, I'm this person, I did this. Um, but I think that's everybody, you know, everybody uh, is struggling and, and is uh, almost overcome with sorrow. And the way that we get out of that is by reasserting our identity. But in fact, it's the collective identity that actually has the possibility of saving us. To, to, to say, I, I'm small and temporary, but we are big and we're eternal. You know. That's really great. I can't, I'm also going to go to the gym so that I can make it to that opera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a big opera fan, so I was really thrilled to know that it was going to be, um, that, it, that it will be at the Met. That's a, that scene is the one I'd like to see, how they, how they do that. Yeah, just listening to you read it, I just am sort of imagining You're referring it. to, explain what you're referring oh, to. Oh, so um, last, I mean, this has, I think, been in the news, but also last night, uh, Monica Farrell, who did such a terrific interview, um, mentioned that uh, Lincoln and the Bardo will be at the Met um, in, in perhaps the first production by a with a woman composer, yeah. which is also so cool, and um, a bit of an opera hound. So, um, and I'm trying to learn how to write a I libretto. Did not know that about it's you. true. Okay. Um, I'm trying to learn how to write a libretto. And and when I read the book before that news came out, I was like, I bet this would be such a cool opera. I had the same thought. I kept telling him it's going to be such a great opera. You know, because we love opera too. So, yes, yeah. yeah. 2026, though. That's, that's you have to live long. Oh, hang that's I'll hang in there. We all, have to, we all have to hang in there. Well, uh, Trump will definitely not be president <laughs> unless something very bad has happened. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Let's not go down that road. Um, so, the Democratic field is terrifyingly large. We were um, running through the list of people as we were prepping this episode. and. Whitney a couple times said who, and a couple times I said what, and from where, and we made a bunch of cards with all of the candidates on them and, and thought that we might play a couple of games, a little bit of political Mad Libs as a way of thinking about this large field um, and make me making it more fun than worrying about terrible things that might happen. We need a volunteer to come up on stage and help yeah, us. Right there. Yeah. George is <laughs> the volunteer. Come on up, sir. We have an extra seat. Thank you, George. Okay, so the way this game works, oh, let me get my script, um, is we'll give you each, a, each of you gets to draw a political candidate, and we're gonna, and, and we'll ask questions about, the, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have one question, everyone will draw a card for it, and we'll answer the question based on the candidate you get. Paula is hating this idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've, I don't know any of them. We understand, it's okay. Um, you do not have to answer seriously in any way. Um, all right, so the first question, however, is what music would you like to hear at this candidate's rallies? So I'll, I'll hand these out, we'll each draw. I'll take one for myself. There you go, you have to read who you get. Who'd you get? It's like, who is that guy? John Hickenlooper, John, John I think you got, yeah. Sugi? Tim Ryan. Oops, sorry. Uh-oh. Who's Tim Ryan again? I don't know. <laughs> Who'd you guys get? Oh, you were, only, you were only supposed to get one, but now you've got two. Oh, I, 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 okay. You can pick which one. Which one do you want better? We got Bruce Springsteen. No, we got... <laughs> we got no, Bernie. Yeah, we'll, we'll oh, got you Bernie. got Bernie. That Bernie's good. Yeah. And I have... 
Jay Inslee. The Silicon Valley guy. Okay. Ins what? Inslee. Inslee, Inslee. right. He's the environmental guy, right? Right. Who plays environmental music? <laughs> Who would I want for that? John Denver. <laughs> I was going to do Hick. He's good for Hickenlooper, but I'll take John Denver. Fine. Take him away from you. John Denver for Jay Inslee. Who do you have for Hickenlooper? I have no, I'm clueless. I'm totally clueless. He's a, used to, he used to be a guy who makes beer. He was the uh, governor of Colorado. He's... That's the Bud Light commercial music. Toad the Wet Sprocket. They're from Colorado. Everyone's like, oh. All right, give me a Colorado band. Audience. They John all want John Denver. John Denver will play at both of these guys. They'll just can't be together. Suki, who do you got? I have Tim Ryan, but I don't remember. He's like a Midwestern so you guy. Got, you guys are being undone by your own game. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knows the candidates. Yeah, that's I just true. I I have Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, and I have I learned how to see Pete, Pete Buttigieg's name. Bob Seger would be good for him. I'd, I'd go with Bob Seger for Tim Ryan. Yeah, why? Well, he's kind of the working class guy. Okay. Yeah. Bernie, though. I would have that that famous song. I'm going to kick ass in 2016. You know that one? That's a big hit. That, yeah. <laughs> you mean 2020? 2020. Yeah. No, 2020. Yeah, no, 2020. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that no, I don't know Bernie. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know either. I don't know. That's, Something by Hank Williams. That, that's yes! Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. Yeah. All right. The next one is, what literary writer, which literary writer would, should write entertaining speeches for this candidate? That doesn't mean that they have to um, write now, good speeches. You're going to draw a new person. He's going to get rid of Hick and Luke. He doesn't want that anymore. You can throw that on the ground. We're done with that. Take your choice. Take your choice. Goodbye, Tim Ryan. Oh, okay, this is for both of us, right? Yeah. Oh, this, good. we're doing good so far yeah, with our okay. draws. We're we got Kamala so, Harris. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah we like her. Um, I have Elizabeth Warren. Who would I take? Steinbeck? Hemingway? No, not. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Kind of, Do you have somebody? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Why not? Oh, that's a good I one. I think Susan Sontag, it should yep. be. That's an excellent choice. What do you, who do you have? I have Stacey Ab Abrams, and I also would take audience suggestions. She's from Georgia. <laughs> She's just a great writer herself. Yeah, she is. She is. She's a, every time she opens her mouth, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I, that, um, she wrote an article for like Foreign Affairs, um, and yeah, I just, She's yeah, she's a great writer herself. You can see that when she made that speech, it was just crystal clear, and it was clearly coming from her and not from some other source. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She doesn't need a speechwriter. She's. Right. Um, I have Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, and I, my friend Curtis Sittenfeld, might be interesting. Oh, for that, there you go for that job. Um, I feel like she'll either be really happy to hear that or very unhappy. <laughs> well, Curtis is very busy writing <laughs> writing a novel. Um, in about a speculative version of Hillary Clinton's life in which she turns Bill Clinton's proposal down. And she has talked about this publicly. Oh, wow. So. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she's, she's got a lot of political research. Um, so, and you all George and Paul, who do you have? Yeah. Kamala Harris. Yeah. No, you go for it. I'll do it. I'll yeah. write her speech. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That'd be the best, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Although, you know what, we... Uh, uh, I think that we have a book of Toni Morrison's essays, and anybody she wrote for would win, I think. You know, mm. should win. She would be great. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. All right, this is our last <laughs> round. Indeed, it would. 
I'm sure everyone's thrilled. Uh, if this candidate was in the writing business, what job would they have? Would they be a poet, a fiction writer, an editor, an agent, a publisher, a screenwriter, or something else? Oh, you're going to love that. No, you, don't, you don't want that one. You want this one. <laughs> there you go. Oh, wait. <laughs> the election is not rigged. <laughs> it's rigged. <laughs> Uh, all right, I don't, I'm not going first this time. You go first. I'm, I have to go first? Okay, I have okay. Beto O'Rourke. Um, what would he be? Oh, you already said what he would be. What did I say? Last? I, we were joking about this last night over sushi. Um, I don't know, like a self-help book author? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I like right, him. Actually. I, 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 like, I like some of what he says, but yes, I think I would maybe stick with that. I think Pete Buttigieg would, I have Pete Buttigieg, we do. I think he'd be a nonfiction writer. Because he's very um, capable, and I mean, not that fiction writers aren't so capable, but he <laughs> actually can get things done that are real in the world. It seems like. And he's done things. He was a Rose Scholar. He's done things. And he was mm -hmm. a vet. Yeah. 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 And I then he'd do all his own translations. Yeah, yeah he would. Right. He sure right. would. That's right. Yeah. Seven languages HBL, or something. Yeah. yeah. And he learned. I heard he learned Norwegian just in order to be able to read in Norwegian. He wanted to read the original text. Wow. Wow, Definitely works harder than a fiction guy. writer does. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah, nonfiction non writer. Yeah. yeah. Who do you have? Sir? I have uh, Cory Booker. Yeah. I'd say a poet. So, yeah, I think yeah. that's true. Yeah, he's running true. the like all positivity love campaign. Right. Yeah. Did you know that? That's what yes, I just don't know that I think of poets as all positivity and love. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I have Joe Biden. It's too easy. He'd be a producer of a Hollywood yeah. extravaganza. You know that. Yeah, probably. All right. Um, all right, so we have just a couple minutes left. Um, I want to thank, tell me your name again. I'm Brian Bhutan. Thank Brian for coming up here and helping us out. And we can take a couple questions before um, we're done, if anybody wants to. Yes, you have to come up front and, I'll, and speak into this mic, though, so we can have you on the show. I'm Lauren Hickey, and I work at a public library in Kansas City. Oh, cool. I'm wondering if you all plan to read the actual Mueller report. Hmm. Good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, George. You know, honestly, probably not, because I'm lazy, and, and I'm, get, I mean, I'm hearing excerpts. 478 pages. Are, hmm. Yeah, no, I should. It would, it would be a good civic thing to do, I think. Yeah, it would be a good thing to do. There's no pressure, but yesterday I saw on Amazon that it was the highest-selling item on Amazon. Oh, really? yesterday. Wow, that's actually wonderful. Yeah, I, that's not a nice thing to say to a bunch of writers. No, I think it would be actually so important, especially if we get the unredacted one. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I might read it yeah. um, because. I do a lot of research on, I write mostly, um, but not exclusively about Sri Lanka, and for many years have found that the, the documents, like the, the government documents and testimonies uh, from commissions, the endless commissions, um, they're very, they're interesting. They have these little bits of um, truth in them, mm -hmm. and you do have to sometimes plow through them with a highlighter, um, <laughs> several naps in between. Interesting. So hi, my name is David Mayer, and um, I was um, sitting there and realizing Barack Obama was a writer. So are any of these, and a good writer, uh, are any of the current candidates people that we think might be good writers? 
Well, they all write books. It's yeah. one of the one of the like stations of the cross for being a candidate to have a book come out. But the question is whether you write it yourself or whether somebody yeah. else wrote it, right? Isn't Beto supposed to be a decent writer? He, he did. He did a really interesting blog where he just traveled across Texas yeah. by himself, and I, I thought it was really interesting. Biden, I, Biden's book was really touching and really good. I haven't and read I, his book. Yeah, and I interviewed him about it, and he was just. You know, right from the heart, and he had a great loss, and two great losses, and well, many in his life, and just wrote very directly about it. Mm -hmm. That wasn't nice for me to say that he would be a producer. I do have a friend who uh, I knew when I was reporting in Iraq, who was a lieutenant, and then became a, a his one of his speechwriters, and he had a great experiences working yeah, for him. He's um, a great guy, actually. Who else writes well? Stacey Abrams, um, yeah. I think, is just a beautiful, beautiful writer who seems to be doing her own writing. Um, Elizabeth Warren is a bit academic, but mm. also very clear and precise, which I really appreciate. She's mm -hmm. dropping all kinds of policy ideas, I though. Know. It's really great. I like her. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's wonderful, the substance. It's really She's great. smart. Well, then we will sign off and say thank you to George and Paul for being here with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very you. much. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Cody Shrum, a UMKC MFA graduate student and an intern producer for the show, along with Zach Kilgus. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the news tab. If you enjoy this show, you can do one easy thing to help us out. We know there are a lot of you listeners out there, but when Whitney compares our listener totals to the number of ratings we've received on iTunes, he starts beating his head on the table. So, take a few seconds, a few seconds, to give us a rating there. It really helps us out. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod and on Twitter at FNFTalk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. And we want to give a special thanks to Alex George and all the wonderful people at the Unbound Book Festival in Columbia, Missouri. If you haven't had a chance to visit, visit this event, you should make your plans for 2020. And one last thing, we've got an original musical contribution for you coming up after these credits. It's from the artist Bob Hillman. It's called Carver-esque, and it has to do with writing, and we thought it would be perfect for the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. Happy reading, and please listen in.
It's a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough. 